Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 84. Good gosh, we're already at 84. Pretty soon we're going to be knocking on the door of 100, and I expect somebody to send me a cake, and I expect nobody to jump out of it, because that's what I would prefer. Uh, so everybody, thank you so much for continuing to support the show, continuing to support Counterpunch. It's so greatly appreciated. I think it's it's so crucial to maintain Counterpunch, to maintain the spaces that we do have online in the alternative media, given the political climate of today, given the, uh, I mean, the just the barren landscape that is uh, the left alternative media. And so if you want to support Counterpunch, you want to be part of this project, get yourself a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great way to be a contributor, but also to get something out of it. The magazine is great. Always good artwork, good columns. I mean, it, it really is top notch. And considering how few publications are still printing on paper, it's something of an oddity. Uh, and really something of an oddity should be the tagline for Counterpunch in general, I think. Uh, uh, let's see, what else do we have? Also, I, I, I just want to give a little plug for my own work. I have another podcast going now. If you want to listen to the full version of the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. One dollar a month is all it costs, and you get full access to all the podcasts. Donations above one dollar get you access to videos and articles and all kinds of other content that I'm putting out there separate from Counterpunch Radio. So if you like this show, you like my work, there's so much more uh, for you to engage with, go to the website uh, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer and stopimperialism.org Anyway, uh, all the uh, shameless self-promotion out of the way, I want to turn to my guest, a returning guest, someone whose work I greatly respect and whose work I admire very much. Uh, she's been on the show a couple of times, but I wanted to have her back on to talk about some of the initiatives that she's involved with as we speak. Uh, so, Laura Carlson. Uh, Laura Carlson is of the is the director of the America's Program at the Center for International Policy. Follow uh, them online at CIP Online. .org. Laura Carlson, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much, Eric. Uh, thanks for coming back. Now, I mean, the obvious question to start with is, where the heck are you and what the heck are you doing? <laughs> Sometimes I can't tell myself because I can, I can imagine. is day number 13 of the Caravan Against Fear. And right now I'm standing here, beautiful day, in Austin, Texas. And we just got through with an event with uh, a breakfast with some community members. We started out in Sacramento, California, in the state capital on April 10th with a group of about 50 people organized by the Service Employees International Union and Global Exchange and other organizations to traverse California and then the border from California to Texas. Uh, to see what's happening with these new anti-immigrant policies of Donald Trump, what the people are feeling, and what the people are doing to fight back. And we've seen both of those things along the road. Uh, it's been a fascinating trip. It's a great group of people. The real purpose of it is to encourage communities to know that they are not alone, that they will not be abandoned as the threats and the attacks from the Trump administration become more and more uh, aggressive, as we've seen just in this past week with Jeff Sessions, Attorney General, on the border, talking about uh, ground zero in the border area three times in the last uh, approximately less than two weeks. 
So the communities are feeling the heat, they're feeling fear, but they're also beginning to organize at some levels and create new forms of unity that we haven't seen in the past. Very interesting uh, initiative that you're involved in. And, uh, you know, I just want to I want to take one part of what you said and expand on it a little bit because I'm very interested. So you started up in you said Sacramento, right? Right. Yeah. So Sacramento, I mean, I'm, I'm originally from California, so uh, from Southern California, but I know California well. I mean, Sacramento is really the top of the Central Valley. The Central Valley is one of the breadbaskets of the United States where agriculture, large scale agriculture is, of course, the dominant economic activity. Obviously, migrant labor figures centrally in all of that. So it's kind of a fitting place to really start the sort of initiative that you're involved in. So tell us a little bit about what some of the uh, workers uh, migrant workers and others in the Central Valley are saying about what's happening. What are their experiences since uh, Donald Trump uh, came to the White House? That's right, Eric, and that was a big reason to start there and to spend so much time, so much a week, in the state of California and in that region of it in particular. We've had uh, demonstrations and rallies in uh, the whole the whole part of the country, starting in, in Sacramento and Fresno and Modesto. We've met with members of the United Farm Workers. So far, what people are saying is they're holding on to their historic gains, but uh, they're feeling, they are feeling a lot of fear in immigrant communities because many of the increased apprehensions um, that have taken place since Donald Trump came into office, sent kind of shockwaves through the entire community. Many of these families are mixed, which means that they have both uh, legal status members and members without papers in the same family or extended family. So that makes everyone feel pretty vulnerable at this time. Now that we've had the deportation of a DACA student, which is to say someone who was brought to the country and under the executive order of of then-President Obama was given a legal status, a temporary legal status, and anyway, and deported despite that, again, that's making a whole new sector of like 750,000 young people feel that they're, that they're vulnerable as well. Some of the statistics that we've seen coming out just recently from the government back up, um, not the reason to be afraid, because the message is to not let them make you afraid. However, the reality is that there's a real threat out there. There's been about a 30% increase in apprehensions within the country of undocumented workers and there's been the number of non-criminal undocumented workers that have been apprehended has doubled. So that goes completely against this narrative of the Trump government that what they're doing is getting rid of criminal elements who do not have a uh, migration status in the country. In fact, even those who are supposedly listed as criminals can be listed for crimes that are related simply to their immigration status. So what you have is a much broader net being cast and a purpose strategy of looking to instill fear. In California, the farm workers, um, we haven't seen major raids there. There's still a lot of uncertainty, too, because 
what people are seeing is that this deportation machine is just being geared up. We're just now seeing the legal framework being changed, some of the protections of the Obama administration uh, being disregarded or discarded. So they feel that although in some places they haven't felt the full weight of the changes so far, that they're very likely to begin to feel it. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to organize this caravan and as it goes from community to community, begin to get together the different groups in the different sectors, including farm workers in one of the richest, as you mentioned, agricultural areas in the world, to prepare also for what's likely to come in the future. The other reason we started in Sacramento is because California is shaping up to be the state that stands up to Trump, especially on this immigration issue. The union, SEIU, and other organizations that we've been working with in California are actively lobbying to pass what's called SB 54. And this is a law that would make the entire state a sanctuary area. By this, primarily the most important part of it is that it means that local and state law enforcement officers would not cooperate with ICE in hunting down immigrants. And what they're saying, we've already seen this happening on the level of many cities within California and across the country and counties as well, and even school systems that are declaring ICE is not allowed into our schools to terrorize our children and divide our community. And now what this law would do is make that happen on a statewide basis. This is a very, very important uh, initiative initiative that should come up to a vote quite soon. And within California, there's a lot of other things happening, too, as well. We've gone through, as we go to communities, from one community to the next, in addition to seeing that uncertainty and the fear that people feel, particularly those who, in one way or another, have undocumented workers in their lives, we're also seeing, as I said before, these new kinds of resistance. There's community organizations and unions that are carrying out Know Your Right campaigns. You do not have to talk to ICE. You do not have to let them in there in your house without a warrant. There's a number of protections that fortunately still exist within our society, which is on the road to becoming a police state that hasn't fully gotten there. And people are saying, we're not going to let that happen. They're teaching people their rights. Uh, they're creating some some legal services where possible to defend uh, cases of of deportations and apprehensions. And that's what's going on across the country. But particularly, as I mentioned, in terms of standing up for immigrant rights and for the rights of communities to remain whole, uh, California seems to be in the vanguard. So there was a lot of work to really kind of encourage public officials to continue in that thing. No doubt about it. And um, one of the things, just picking up on some of your comments there, one of the things that I always try to stress, and certainly since uh, Donald Trump won the presidential election and has come to office, is kind of maintaining a a, a balanced perspective vis-a-vis uh, Obama. So not getting into the, you know, falling into the Democratic Party trap of, uh, you know, everything Trump is evil and everything Obama did was great, which is, of course, nonsense. Obama did all kinds of horrific things in Latin America, including the, you know, Honduras and the support for the coup, including all the things going on in Latin America and the Alba countries and much else and, and also deportations, it must be. 
be said, a huge number of deportations under Obama. But noting all of that, the idea that there's some kind of an equivalence between policy, immigration policy under Obama and what we're now seeing under Trump is, of course, utterly false. Not only the statistics that you highlighted, which show the increase, but the psychological impact of the fear campaign that's being used. This is, I think, incredibly significant when we're hearing stories about uh, undocumented immigrants being picked up at, at, at police stations when they try to report their abusive husbands. We hear all kinds of yeah. stories about things going on in front of their children at home, all kinds of other things that are happening that is clearly a qualitative difference from what came before it. So on the one hand, keeping a rational and uh, unbiased perspective on what Obama meant for Latin America, but also recognizing the reality of Trump. Yes, I think that's very important to mention because everywhere we go, people say this is not new. Uh, some of the deportation, a lot of the deportation stories and family separation stories have to do with uh, deportations that happened under Obama. Yeah. But there's no reason whatsoever for us to be in a position to say Obama was good and Trump is bad, yeah. you know, in black and white terms. Yeah. What people are saying is that let's look at the tendencies, we, because that's what we have to prepare for. And at the end, you had the deportations under Obama going down, and you had especially a real tendency to reduce the use of detention uh, among immigrants. And with Trump, of course, you have the opposite in both in both cases. You have the deportations going up, and you have mandatory detention in almost all cases. Even people who are coming across the border with very strong asylum cases, that is to say, these are refugees. These are people who lives, whose lives are in danger uh, for a number of reasons, generally political, in the countries of origin. And even in those cases, they're being sent to what is essentially prison, these immigrant detention centers, and their cases can take months in order to be resolved. So here you have victims who are fleeing for their lives from Central America, the regular families are in life-threatening situations because of the violence that in large part has been created by U.S. policies, and they're being thrown into prison as criminals, essentially. Why is that happening? What purpose does it serve to throw victims into prison like that? Well, the answer is obvious. What is the purpose that's being served is that these are private prisons. These are prisons that make money off of locking people up. And in fact, if we didn't lock these people up, they wouldn't have a clientele, so to speak. It's taxpayer dollars that's paying for this. And these are some of the, these are some of the companies that have experienced the highest increase in the value of their stocks on the market after Donald Trump won. This is payback time for Trump. This is the time when he starts putting money into the pockets of some of those those companies and those industries that have been supporting him. And at the same time, just can't deny that there's a vision there. There's a vision of returning the United States as quickly as possible to a white male rule yes. in which the demographics of rising Hispanics and other people of color within the country uh, do not get to the point, because this is the Trump nightmare, you know, of democratically being able to have an impact in the representational system of government. 
in order to do that, because the demographic, demographics are really clear that by about, I believe the year is 2020, um, in the broadest sense, the definition of people of color, what were formerly called minority groups, uh, actually will be in the majority. And they don't want to see that happen. They want this nativist, racist vision of America to take hold and to have control before uh, there's a possibility that there could really be representation of these other sectors and of the rich diversity that is our country in the electoral system. It's happening. It's happening fast. It's happening in an extremely ugly way. But again, the good news is that people are resisting. Oh, that's absolutely right. And uh, we do have uh, historical parallels that we can look at. I, I was just recently reading a little bit, uh, reminding myself a little bit about the Know Nothing movement in the pre-Civil War era. And there are many of the same arguments that you hear a lot of the Trump people say today are almost verbatim what you heard uh, a lot of Americans saying in the 1850s about the Irish refugees coming with their Catholicism and their papist, their, their papist conspiracies and all of this other nonsense that really formed the bedrock of what became uh, well, a couple of generations later the racist institutions that we know today in modern America. So in, in, in many ways what you're saying is true. This idea of Trump and the Trump uh, movement as kind of this white supremacist attempt to take America back decades and decades, I mean, that is playing out in the form of policy when it comes to immigration. And then moreover, of course, the, the economic question I think is key. And I, I want to ask you a little bit about that because there does seem to be something of a contradiction here. On the one hand, Trump wants to enrich, uh, you know, big corporations. On the other hand, there is this question of if he goes after the immigration issue, is he undermining the the cheap labor that these corporations depend on? I'm wondering if you've talked at all with uh, with people about that, or even some you know economic minded people about that issue about labor versus immigration. Yes, I, it's come up. I think that there's there's a couple of elements to answering that question because we still have to have to see what happens with the government, with the Trump administration, and we have to analyze it further. First of all, there's no question whatsoever on the part of economists that if he did carry out his plan of um, deporting eventually up to 11 million undocumented workers, the economy would suffer a, re a recession approximately three times worse than the 2008 recession. Those people are not only producing and carrying out jobs at a fraction of what it would cost in many cases to hire, uh, to provide full labor rights to the individuals who carry out those jobs, but they're also consumers. They're also paying taxes. So there's a multiple impact there that the economy virtually could not sustain. At the same time, this need for the labor and they're, they're talking about, I think in some ways, when John Kelly went to Congress and said, if you don't like the immigration laws, it's our job to enforce them. If you don't like them, change them. Knowing full well that he has a Democratic con uh, Republican Congress that is not going to carry out a just comprehensive immigration reform. But when he said this, he's also saying it because they are eventually moving toward a form of immigration reform that really institutionalizes that second-tier labor, 
like a guest worker program or casero program where they can get workers from time to time from places where they don't have to pay them full salaries and they don't have to respect full labor rights, uh, but on their terms and not on any terms that would resolve the problems of family separation or that would resolve the problems of exploitation and lack of full labor rights within a huge segment of the U.S. labor market. So that's where this is going as well. They they're don't want to try to have the United States operate without that cheap labor base because they know how that would hurt some of the very companies that have most supported you know, the the Trump administration and some of the billionaires who made their fortunes off of that. You know, one of the interesting things about Trump and speaking of billionaires who made their money off of uh, Mexican labor, uh, one of the interesting things about Trump is that during the campaign, he he essentially campaigned on 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 two different promises well a, a number of them but two of the promises that he campaigned on one had to do with addressing immigration and of course you read between the not so subtle lines there and it's basically get rid of as many brown people as we can uh on the other hand he railed against nafta which is really instrumental in creating the recent, you know, the recent meaning the last couple decades flow of, uh, of migrants out of Mexico after U.S. Uh, agricultural exports really became dumped on that market and labor had to move north in search of, in search of work. So, how does Trump hold both of these ideas simultaneously? NAFTA's bad. We should get rid of NAFTA and protect American workers. At the same time, get rid of the get rid of the labor. Oh, by the way, I'm not actually changing NAFTA now that I'm president. Right. So the common thread there is the Mexico bashing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's arguing that NAFTA is bad because Mexico benefited and not the United States, and completely ignoring the fact that it was NAFTA itself that caused so much of that undocumented immigration. Exactly. There were 2 million small farmers that were displaced as a result of NAFTA and the influx of U.S. subsidized agricultural products. So now he's saying that the tweaks will be relatively minor. Um, he's still insisting that they can get a better deal in the sense of uh, America first and possibly protecting certain sectors or something like that, but not taking into account that if Mexico retaliates quid pro quo, which would be the normal thing for any country to do, uh, the United States could be in a trade war with its second largest trading partner. I think that, again, in a lot of Trump policy, and particularly foreign policy, many, many aspects are not thought through. There's a severe contradiction between that racist image of a nativist country and the globalized economy that has made so many of these rich white men uh, wealthy and powerful in the first place. So he's probably in, a, in kind of a spot on the renegotiation of NAFTA because of those contradictions. He's come out with some of what he proposes for that renegotiation. It's It's not major... It could have a major impact on Mexico. But one of the interesting things will be to see how Mexico responds. Within Mexico, for example, and the United States, one of the responses right now is a proposal to raise the minimum wage and actually write this in for all the countries. That the only way you keep companies from out, from outsourcing, 
production to Mexico is by eliminating a large part of that wage disparity that's the incentive for them to do it in the first place. So that's completely against, you know, the 1% type policies that Donald Trump wants to see, and yet it's a logical response to any proposal to renegotiate NAFTA. Also, small farmers in Mexico are saying, great, go ahead, renegotiate, we want out. And they actually want to eliminate the agricultural chapter so that Mexico is not obliged to import uh, U.S. agricultural products. And that so when there are sectors that are still completing a number of different economic functions, not just producing food and selling it, but also producing employment, also producing food sovereignty so that the nation can feed its own people, um, that these can be taken into consideration and they can have some uh, protections in order to develop their industry and protect their jobs and protect their nutritional levels for their own people. So so there's some counter-proposals that could end up being exactly what Trump didn't want to see uh, in this renegotiation for NAFTA. I think for us, you know, it's been an interesting time because you're like, yeah, renegotiate NAFTA. We've been complaining about how this was favored to corporations from the very beginning. But of course, there's a lot of fear that uh, if the Trump administration goes in and tries to renegotiate it according to only their interests, then it's certainly not going to be the type of renegotiation we'd like to see. So right now, taking the opportunity to question NAFTA is at least creating a new vision and and alternatives for uh, many of the sectors that were not involved in the original negotiations, and it will become a way of opening up public debate about what this economic integration looks like and what it should look like. Exactly. Quick question before we go to break. Uh, Mexico has been on the long road of neoliberalization for a, quite a while now. Privatization, neoliberalization, uh, specifically with regard to the energy sector, but education, many other things that have been undergoing that process. Donald Trump comes along and it does seem like at least some of the policies as they had been up till now might have been in jeopardy. And so, you know, on the one hand, we, we you know, we could see Mexico as one of the countries that might want to push back against Donald Trump. On the other hand, there are vested interests inside of Mexico and in the U.S. that have interests in Mexico that need to see the government uh, remaining compliant with the broader agenda of Wall Street and finance capital. So is there a tension between Washington and Wall Street when it comes to Mexico and the economy? I don't think so. In the end, you're going to see that uh, really there's there's a fair a fair amount of bluff in the anti-Mexico positions as well. Although there is uh, evidently a campaign against Mexicans living within the United States, and we see that not only in the economic realm, where rapidly people are understanding that this kind of integration, that was an integration of the one percent of both countries and that permitted basically the transnationalization of the Mexican economy and access to natural resources, starting with oil, which was the most recent and the most important to U.S. investors, has been a boom for precisely the type of people that Donald Trump is and wants to benefit. But the other area, too, where that contradiction comes into play is insecurity. 
they've been talking about criticizing Mexico on all these fronts. And yet, when you look at the drug war, which is heavily sponsored and promoted by the U.S. government, uh, we're beginning to see, well, no, we do want to continue to cooperate cooperate with Mexico on the drug war. Because what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you actually fight the flow of transnational drugs, which they've never really done. It means that uh, you've gone to Mexico that's completely militarized and in large part under U.S. command because the United States installs and operates the intelligence systems and advises the Mexican authorities and security officials on all levels so that if there is a popular uprising against this onslaught of transnationals in national resources and uh, control over territory, uh, they can put it down. And they can put it down pretty quickly even though it would be quite bloody. And we're always already seeing cases of that where the deployment of the armed forces in the drug war is actually being used to put down social movements. Indeed. Okay, we've got to take a break. Uh, we'll continue the conversation with Laura Carlson uh, after the break. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Now over there in Managua Square With America-made bombs falling everywhere Kill women and children and animals too These bombs are made by people like me and you And we're told that we hold a big stick over them But I know Back here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Laura Carlson. Follow the um, follow the website CIPonline.org. That's the America's program at the Center for International Policy. Where uh, wait, I have a slight correction there. Oh, go ahead. Because uh, yeah, the the website was hacked right after the U.S. election. Um, the the entire oh, really? page where we've kept our program, yeah, for like 25 years now, was redirected to a pornography site. And every day we would fix it, and every day it would be hacked again. And this went on for about four or five months. We've now had to change the URL. We can't get the CIP America site back up because they've taken the domain as well. We don't know where these attacks are coming from. But there's been a concerted effort to shut us up from saying the kind of things that we're talking about today. 
So now people can find our work again. Uh, I'm hoping that we'll be able to protect this news site at americas.org. Americas.org. Thank you for that. I uh, I didn't realize that. How interesting. Um, I, somehow I'm not surprised. Yeah, somehow I'm not hard surprised. Hard time. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, so Americas.org is where you want to go. So uh, Laura, I wanna I want to get a little bit more of a sense of your experiences on this caravan trip that you've that you've gone on. So you talked a little bit about these the Central Valley in California. So that's for those people who don't know California well. Everything south of Sacramento, Fresno. Uh, all the way down to the oil territory and Bakersfield and everything in between all that central Valley, but you've gone beyond that. And, and so tell me what you've, what you've seen on the border along the border regions and what those families and those people are telling you about their experiences. What people are saying is, is a combination of a little bit what we talked about before. And that is the fear that they're feeling about what's already happening and what could happen. For example, just to show again what a broad net is being cast in terms of, of the apprehensions, the other day in Chaparral, New Mexico, a woman was talking about how, uh, you know, this has been in a region that's been integrated forever. And what she was saying is that a legal resident went to Mexico and attempted to come back and was harassed and given a paper to sign, um, which he was apparently you know, not fully aware of the content, and ended up banned from coming back to the United States for 20 years. This is a legal resident who had been here for years, who has his entire family here, and can no longer come back and is stuck in a country he barely he barely even knows, except to visit occasionally on the weekends. So not only are they not just criminals with uh, undocumented status, but we're looking again, we've had cases of, of DACA young people protected under the under the deferred action order and also cases of even legal residents that they've gone after. So what's the point of doing this? The point is that this instilling fear within the communities is part of the strategy itself. What they're hoping, and people have formally said this, is that they're trying to get us to leave. But this is giving up a lifetime and in many cases giving up family ties when you can just take a second to apply that to your own life and realize that it's not something that people are going to do easily, nor is anything that they should ever have to do. And yet they're feeling the pressure. In Mexico, there have already been reports about people returning voluntarily because they can no longer deal with the degree of hostility. What people are doing, they're, uh, they're doing things that are really very sad to think about if you had to do them yourself. Uh, families are filling out power of attorney, and, and letters saying who their children will stay with if they're deported. They have to actually contemplate the possibility that they would no longer be able to raise their own children. They're filling out legal letters in order to determine where their property goes because there have been cases in which the people are deported almost from one minute to the next. Their property uh, is virtually stolen within the community, and they lose much of what they had built up for years and years working hard in the United States. So they're taking these uh, precautionary measures because they really do feel like anything could happen in this point with the policies and the practices that the Trump administration is implementing. 
Indeed. Now, one of the other things I want to know uh, uh, about, um, you know, what those what what the people in those communities are saying has to do with not the not the legal side and not the law enforcement side, but the cultural side. Have they seen a cultural shift, uh, particularly from, you know, white Americans who maybe uh, before might have had one, uh, you know, outward uh, attitude and now take another? I've noticed it just in my own life and in people that I've dealt with, certainly uh, people that I that I encounter on an everyday basis. I, I try to ask them, you know, have they noticed any difference in the way that people speak to them, act towards them? I'm very curious because of the hostility whipped up by Trump throughout the campaign, specifically targeting Mexicans and and Muslims, of course, as well. Uh, have they have these communities voiced any concern from citizens as to their safety, as to harassment and so forth? Yes, Eric, this is probably one of the saddest parts of what we're seeing that's going on here. People will describe just being standing on standing on a street corner and having, uh, you know, white people from the community come up and yell at them, go back to where you came from. Yeah. Some of these incidents have been recorded on social networks, but also when you talk to people in the border region, especially just about what's going on, um, it's frequent to hear these kinds of stories. What they feel has happened is that with these policies and hate speech coming directly out of the government of the United States, uh, that, that racists who used to feel like they had to somewhat moderate their, the expression of these views, at least in public, are now emboldened to come out and, and actively attack, at least verbally, undocumented, or not even undocumented, anyone who even looks Hispanic within their community. The racism and the uh, white supremacy is totally, it's, it's, it's now completely normalized. It's been, yes, and it's being expressed. Of course, there are a lot of people who support them, too, so they've been able to kind of draw the lines within many communities, but it's being expressed far more openly than it was before, and it's dividing communities in many cases. In cases where... Um, Communities have risen up. We went to one place. It's a little town, only 700 inhabitants, called Arivaca. In that town, it's pretty much strangled by Border Patrol because they've got checkpoints on, on all the entrance and, and exits from the town itself. So some people got together. It's a place in the middle of the desert where migrants come through, and they often come through in really bad shape. They've been forced to take these remote routes because of the crackdown in the cities and in the more common routes. And when they come through someplace like Aribaca in the middle of the desert, they're dehydrated, their feet are torn apart, and the people would come out and help them as a humanitarian measure. So now in this tiny town, you have a town divided between people who are putting up signs saying, we support our border control, our border patrol, and others who, who when they hear that knock on their door, open it and give water and give food and give sustenance to human beings who are just who are trying to survive and who oftentimes arrive at their doorsteps on the on the very brink of survival. So you see these kind of cleavages within towns and communities and cities. They're trying to overcome them. They're trying they don't proclaim enemies and and allies, but rather are are focusing on educational campaigns that will humanize 
because they become dehumanized in the media and in this discourse that we're hearing now. But they will humanize immigrants and that will try to return people to a concept of compassion within their own community. One of the things that was really striking to me, and uh, when I was writing a piece that was in Counterpunch Magazine two issues ago, uh, it was entitled uh, Donald Trump and the Triumph of White Identity Politics. And uh, one of the really interesting things that I came across was a study of uh, the demographics and the attitudes of Trump voters. And one of the conclusions that, that, that the data uh, pointed to was that it wasn't white people in communities that have uh, seen an influx of Mexican uh, immigrants take up residence in those communities. Those weren't the strongest Trump supporters. Those weren't the most racist uh, demographics. Actually, it was white people who live in all white communities that are unaffected by the immigration. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are most strongly supportive of Trump and most strongly uh, uh, vocalizing these sort of racist attitudes. And in in one sense, it would seem counterintuitive, but if you actually think it, think it through, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Yes. The data comes, I'm, I'm sure it's the same study, the data comes from a study from the University of California in Los Angeles that actually went through the voting results on a county-by-county county basis. Yes, exactly. And what they found was exactly this, that the counties that were more heavily supportive of Trump, that voted Trump, were counties in which there were very few immigrants. We've always really known that racism is ignorance. It's not that it's not even so much hatred as it is ignorance which instills a fear of the other because it's because it's unknown. And it's also the result of this very manipulative and false discourse that began to blame uh immigrants for for the weakness of the job market in the United States for the fact that there haven't been gains in 40 years. You know, a number of failures of the U.S. economic and political model were somehow shunted over to immigrants and Mexico to a certain degree, as we saw during the campaign, in, to such a successful degree that these individuals who are feeling certain types of insecurities that were not related to problems that they themselves had directly had with immigrants were convinced that immigrants were their problem. So you have been a, a fairly significant part of the population of the 99%, to say it one way, instead of looking at the problem above, which is the control and the, and the greed of the 1%, were encouraged to look beside them at anyone who was slightly different than themselves. And uh, the result was that these counties voted. The other thing that came out of that study that's interesting is these were counties that actually had benefited from international trade. Exactly. These were not even counties, yeah, that had been the hardest hit by job losses or other things. So, so again, the fact that we've gotten so far from any kind of a political discourse that really refre reflects reality is is scary to say the least, and for communicators uh, like like us, it presents this tremendous challenge because you're saying, "Wait, stop! Look at the facts. This is just plain not true," and a lot of people aren't even listening. Yeah, you know, I mean, 
it reminds me of uh, a period that I that I didn't, of course, live through. But you know, the Red Scare, right? You, you didn't know any communists personally. You didn't even know any communists <laughs> on your street or anything like that. But they were everywhere, and they were coming for you. They were in the shadows. They were gonna corrupt your child in school and corrupt on TV and all of these things, right? That kind of hysteria. That's what I hear when I hear Donald Trump say all. Oh, Mexicans are rapists and they send over their criminals. It has nothing to do with the actual people coming over the border. It has everything to do with exactly as you mentioned fear, which is why the, you know, the, the, the amply, the aptly titled, you know, caravan against fear, I think is so appropriate and so needed. Yeah, it has been. And there's no better example of that alternative reality of the Trump administration than here on the border. When Jeff Sessions came down here, he proclaimed this ground zero. He talked in very racist terms about um, criminals wielding machetes. He talked about filth in his written remarks coming over the border. So we decided to look, and we already knew this, but to check again at what was really happening on the border and to talk to people here. And it turns out that these are the safest communities in the United States. The homicide rate in border communities is way below uh, the homicide rate, is the national average, and below, of course, the homicide rate in many, many cities. So this whole discourse, this whole idea that there's this problem with security, whether it's public security or much less national security, on the border and because of undocumented workers and families coming up from areas that are in crisis situations, like particularly now Central America, because we also now know that the net flow of immigrants from Mexico is negative. There are more coming back than going. This whole discourse was invented to serve a political purpose, and now it's serving that purpose, and it's being carried out despite the fact that it has virtually no relationship to reality and to the reality that anyone pretty much on the border can tell you about. Now, when Jeff Sessions was there the last time in El Paso, it turns out that he was heavily criticized from both the left and the right because the right was saying, wait a minute, this isn't the border zone we know. When he began to characterize it as such a dangerous and strife-ridden area of the country, many people just out of civic pride, regardless of what their politics were, stood up to say, this is just simply not correct. We're in this period of time where these lies uh, have more force than the truth, and it's been an uphill battle trying to portray that truth, but we're seeing more and more people coming around to represent the reality that they actually live and standing up some of these false images, very deeply divisive and racist image that the Trump administration is putting forth. That's right. And I know we're up against the clock and you got a lot on your plate right now, but just a couple more questions. One, isn't it interesting how Jeff Sessions can stand on the border and talk about, you know, the the, the quote unquote crisis with immigration, the crisis of uh, uh, criminality and all of the rest that at the very same time, he can turn around and proclaim a ramping up of the war against what? Marijuana of all things, right? When all the studies point to the fact that of, of all the things that should be legalized and ended is the war against marijuana, because that more than anything would undermine the cartel 
cells. It would undermine a lot of these uh, problems and it would alleviate some of the conflict and it would certainly free up, uh, quote unquote, law enforcement to actually enforce laws that maybe are important. And we see a lot of these studies, not just from marijuana legalization advocates. We see them from, uh, you know, uh, uh, nonpartisan think tanks and all of the rest of that. So Sessions will stand there and say we want to arrest people for marijuana while at the same time saying we want to fight the cartels. That's absolutely the case. All the evidence we have shows that this is a far better way. Legalization, particularly of marijuana, is a far better way to control the power of the drug cartels than the militarization that we're seeing in both the United States and Mexico, in the United States through the militarization of the police forces. And we go back to the initial, the the origins of the drug war itself. It was never designed to control drugs. It was always designed to control people, and particularly to control certain sectors of people. So these are lives that serve very specific interests, and he knows that. Jeff Sessions is a person who was rejected as a federal judge for being openly racist. Uh, is a person who has no problem whatsoever lying in order to maintain those mechanisms of social control that the war on drugs has created both in Mexico and in the United States, and it's been amply documented. Right now what we're seeing is the criminalization of um, one of our speakers on the caravan, Dante Butler, was talking about this the other day at a rally, and he's a black man who works uh, with the SEIU, he said, um, our communities are being criminalized. It's been going on for a long time. Being brown doesn't mean being illegal, and being black doesn't mean being a drug dealer or a criminal. We have to stand up to this because these are mechanisms of social control that are uh, justifying putting huge numbers of our youth behind bars uh, and and eliminating us, basically, from the exercise of democratic rights that could possibly change our society so that we could live together in peace uh, instead of being on this course of conflict and war, both domestically and abroad. This is a, a course of conflict and war that feeds huge industries. We saw three wars essentially being initiated in almost just a week's time with uh, the renewed b- the bombings in Syria, with the mega bomb in Afghanistan, and the opening up of hostilities with North Korea. There's a preparation there for a war economy that can mask the, the, the weaknesses of the current vastly unequal U.S. economy and keep dollars, taxpayer dollars flowing into the pockets of the defense and the intelligence industries it's it, it's not that there's just a giant conspiracy out there, but there's a lot of lies, and those lies have a purpose. And if we don't stand up to those lies, we can never go back to having a real people-oriented, backspace public policy. That's right. And, and, and one of the things, just kind of building on your point, one of the things that we've seen over the last few administrations going back at, at least to Bill Clinton and in fact earlier is massive amounts of U.S. investment into various so-called uh, drug-related, drug war-related and so-called law enforcement security-related initiatives. Obviously, the big one, uh, Plan Colombia in Colombia, in Mexico, the Merida Initiative, and in Central America, the Car- 
CRC or the Central American Regional Security Initiative. All of these are multi-billion dollar programs that the U.S. funds and provides weapons and training and, and private mercenary contractors to the various countries in Central America to essentially militarize them and to militarize them under the auspices of the United States and of U.S. policy and of U.S. Uh, strategic objectives. And while Donald Trump can wax poetic about America first, America first, and I'm going to cut this program, I'm going to cut that program, I haven't heard one mumbling word about cutting the money for the militarization programs. No, and we thought it could be a possibility at first because he kept declaring that the United States was not going to be the cop of the world and get involved in internal affairs of countries yeah, ever, right. anymore. We now see that that is absolutely not going to be the truth. The, the tendency that they develop in uh, what may someday become the Trump doctrine, if there were any coherency in it, and that instead he's given free reign to the generals to uh, run a security apparatus that's, that's gone amok in terms of what it's doing within the country and within the world. This In Mexico, as we know, the Merida Initiative has led to more than 150,000 deaths. These are multi-billion dollar failures. The Merida Initiative, the now newly renamed Alliance for Prosperity, there's almost no success in any human way that you can note as a result of these policies, and yet they're carried on because they because they make the Pentagon stronger in terms of its intervention in foreign countries to protect U.S. interests, and they provide millions and millions of dollars for very powerful lobbying industries within the U.S. Um, uh, electoral and political system. We've asked since the very beginning for the Merida Initiative to be suspended, it makes more sense in many ways, as you say, in the context of this America's first policy, and yet uh, it doesn't seem like that's on the agenda at all. People will continue to be demanding that because of all the damage that it's doing in our countries and pointing out that much of the migration that we see is a direct result of those so-called security programs uh, and that you can't create victims and then criminalize them when they come seeking refuge on your shores. You know, just, it's just absolutely inhumane. Just to illustrate an example for people who maybe this is a bit abstract for, take a country like Honduras. In Honduras, which is now, uh, according to people who are on the ground, essentially uh, a, a, a forward-operating military base for the U.S. military, uh, that, that U.S. military and U.S. mercenary companies, private contractors, in uh, Honduras are arming and training those very same, uh, 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 you know, private contractors and or I'd call them death squads that are attacking indigenous communities like the Garifuna community and others, including, you know, most famously or infamously Berta Cáceres and the people uh, that she's been working with, the communities she was working with. Those are the kinds of people who are leaving Honduras, coming up through Mexico and trying to make it into the United States for some kind of, you know, uh, uh, safety for the their families. If you eliminated U.S. funding for these so-called security initiatives, you would remove a lot of the, uh, you know, impetus for the migration. Yes. And one of the things that people do not understand about these people who are coming up fleeing violence and who have uh, asylum cases, but are often not even allowed to, to 
present them as asylum cases because they're sent back so quickly is that from a lot of the data that we have on attacks on human rights defenders and attacks on land rights defenders, the majority, over 50% of the attacks where they can identify the attacker is the state itself. Exactly. So the United States, by funding the Mexican government, the Honduran government, the Guatemalan government, and and others, is actually funding the worst violator of those human rights and funding, throwing fuel on the fire of those situations of violence and threats to life and property that are driving people out of their home. That's the vicious cycle I'm talking about. That's a vicious cycle that would be really so easy to break if there were any clarity and any truth in the discussion of it, and if we had a foreign policy that actually was oriented toward peace and the well-being of human beings, not only in the United States, but across the world. All we have to do is change some of the foreign policies, the public policies that are aggravating the situations in our country and in other countries, in order to begin to reduce the root causes of immigration and thereby deal have a situation that's been defused so we can deal urgently and rationally with the immigration reform that's so drastically needed in the United States. Absolutely right. And I, I don't think anybody can really, uh, you know, hold out much hope that anything positive on that front is going to happen when you literally, literally have ExxonMobil in charge of the State Department. I mean, if you think if you think U.S. foreign policy was driven by oil interests during the Bush administration, and the Obama administration, I mean, Tillerson at the State Department, that puts a target right on the back of uh, of Mexico. That puts a target on the back, certainly of Venezuela, of Brazil of another of a number of very important countries in the western hemisphere that really should feel under the gun now with Trump. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons they do. In Mexico it was only recently that they privatized the oil industry and uh, a a huge part of the population does not agree with that privatization as opposed to that privatization as those people could rise up to protect their own national resources, that's a threat to the bottom line for ExxonMobil. And that's why they want to keep these militarization policies completely intact, despite the bloody and terrible impact they've had on Mexican society and Mexican families. They want to keep those intact to protect those investments, to protect those resources, not for the nation, but for themselves, and they'll do anything to do it. And we'll see the Merida Initiative continue as long as they're in office and there's sufficient public policy pressure to make it stop because it is completely in line with their interests. And if anybody has any doubts, just take a look at how how scary it was for the Mexican government when they tried to when they when when they tried to raise the price of gas. I mean, you literally almost had the government come crashing down over that issue alone. So uh, something uh, affecting the entire ener- energy industry is of paramount importance to to the Mexican government. Exactly. So, okay, well, um, last thing, I just want to give you a chance. Tell people where they should go to find more information about the caravan, about upcoming initiatives, events. I know you uh, are building towards May Day, the, the, the 1st of May. Tell us about uh, any information that you want people to, uh, you know, to, to, to get. Yeah, thanks, Eric. They can get more information about the caravan on the Caravan, caravan Against Fear Facebook page. 
at w- and also on the the website www.carabinagainstfear.org. Uh, there we've been posting daily about our activities and the activities that are upcoming. From here in Austin, we'll be going on to Houston, and then other places: Corpus Christi, Salpurrias, El Paso in Texas, and then back to Los Angeles. In Los Angeles is the day that much of this movement has been building up to, and that's the May 1st day without immigrants. Uh, in some places, it's being handled as a strike. People are urged not to go to work, not to go to school, not to buy on that day in order to prove that immigrants are an integral part of our communities, that we all have to stand up for them because we're for them, because if we don't stand up for their rights, other sectors will be next. And also our communities and our societies cannot function without them. They're, they're deeply rooted and their rights and to be here are firmly established in international law and in much of U.S. law itself. So this will be a mobilization that will be taking place in a big way in Los Angeles, but it will also be taking place probably in everywhere, your, everywhere that your listeners live. And they should look up the events in their local area and participate them in them because this is a time when we all have to stand up. Absolutely, and uh, this will be this will be available for people to listen to uh, a few days in advance of that. So please do try to uh, put a place in your calendar for attending one of those events, whatever what, whatever works for you in your area, and being a part of this because I do think it's very important. Uh, it's not just uh, you know it's not just uh, solidarity and expressions of solidarity. We need to have uh, real solidarity networks getting involved with the kinds of people who are on the front lines of this struggle who are targeted in this struggle, understanding that we will not be silent as our friends and our neighbors are rounded up and, and, and de- deported out of this country in a, in a fascistic program that, that really must be stopped. So I want to commend you for your work, Laura Carlson, uh, Director of the Americas Program at the Center for International Policy. Go to the website, americas.org. Thanks so much for all the work you're doing, Laura. It's, it's so great. Thank you for the opportunity to talk on the show. 